Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Michael Chakraverty. And I'm Mark Watson. And this is the Menkind Podcast. We're going to take a deep dive into masculinity, exploring what being a man actually means, along with a variety of brilliant guests. You know, men talking about men is a notoriously underrepresented area of podcasting. Not anymore. Uh, so this is my second go at starting the podcast, Michael. The first one went wrong because I couldn't remember your name for a few seconds. No, and you just stared vacantly through the screen. I wasn't sure whether you'd frozen or not. It was really frightening. No, I had frozen, but not on the screen. I had frozen <laughs> in real life. Um, but to confirm, I'm still Mark. You're still Michael. And this week, our guest is Thomas Page McBee. Hi, Michael. Hi, Mark. Nice to meet you guys. I like your ceiling. Yeah, it looks like you're in a kind of a cabin. Oh, I'm in my garage, but this is where I work. Yeah, like this is my office area. I really envy that, having a, a one place that you can go to and just, you know, I mean, I have a room that I work in, but like an actual yeah. a building. I work in my bedroom. <laughs> I work literally two meters from my bed. I uh, feel you. I mean, what... you guys know I was in New York forever, so this is like... Space. It's a whole new right, world. Right, really, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we go quite deep on this one. I think it's really interesting. I really enjoyed hearing what he had to say. I think we all learned a lot. Uh, this is a person that you kind of introduced me to and, well, fascinating. We won't do any spoilers, but a very, very interesting life story, I think it's fair to say. Yes, please enjoy listening to this in your ears or whatever, whatever else you're listening to it, I suppose. I think people will use their ears to listen on the whole. Well, you never know. Please be inclusive. Yeah, enjoy it however you do it. <laughs> Hello. I'm Mark Watson. I'm Phil Michael. I'm assisted, as usual, by Michael Chakraverty. <laughs> and our guest today is Thomas Page McBee. Hi, Thomas. Thomas is joining us from LA for a start, which just makes us feel a bit more important because it, yes. it makes us feel as if we have global reach. <laughs> um, Thomas, how would you introduce yourself to our listeners? Who are you? Always sounds a loaded question, but how do you see yourself and what you do? Usually I say I'm a, an author of two books. Most recently, this book called Amateur, which is about my questions about investigating masculinity with a beginner's mind and also about my journey to become the first trans man to fight in Madison Square Garden. Yeah. But I also say... I'm a journalist. I've been writing about all kinds of things, but especially like gender and the gender culture wars and what masculinity even is for the last decade. And I'm also a film and television writer. So not much then. You don't really feel your time doing that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need to get some interest. It, I mean, th this podcast is all about what masculinity is and means to people. So basically, hopefully you can just fill us in and then we'll, we'll be done. Oh, and then we? we'll finish. Yeah. This will be the final episode of the podcast. We should have asked you at the start. Because... <laughs> 
No, I'm not an expert at all. I mean, that's sort of the thing. Like, I mean, the, the whole premise of the book I wrote was that I have a beginner's mind, you know, in the Zen sense. So I, I have more questions than answers still. Mm. Really. But I think the questions that you ask are particularly interesting and we'll definitely, we'll definitely get there. But I'd like to start by asking you the question that we ask everybody, which is when do you first remember the concept of masculinity being presented to you? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I, I don't know. Thank you, by the way. Thank you. I wrote that question myself. Thank you. Yeah, but I mean, we're a team. It's a good start, though, isn't it? It is a good start, but I sometimes feel like you give yourself a lot of credit and like, we're, we're a team. I've got to do it for someone. <laughs> no, carry on. I don't know because I think, well, first of all, I, what I do know is that gender is socialized so young. I mean, mm. th there's studies that show that, that like literally in infancy, we are being gendered by parents or by the culture around us and, and unconsciously, of course, to some degree consciously, but I mean, a lot of the studies show an unconscious gender. Uh -huh. Like mothers tend to speak more to their girl infants than their boy infants, for mm -hmm. example. And, or like, you know, I think we've all heard the stories uh, you know, about the studies where boy infants are more likely to be held facing outward and girl infants are more likely to be held facing inward. So just like those sorts of things. I didn't know that about speaking more to girl children than sure. boys. That's not something I've heard before. That's amazing. Yeah, that's something I came across when I was researching amateur, and it struck me too, because I guess the indication is that there's a sense that there's going to be an emotional connection in a different way. Yeah. But of course, this is a being that has not developed in any way yet. So Yeah, it's mad so when you think about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so the central tension of my life is holding like this sense that, that I have that's really based on, you know, the facts in my reporting and so on, that we are gendering ourselves and each other so young that it's so hard to even imagine when that even starts. And so therefore, what does it even mean? But mm. yet I'm also a transgender man. Yeah. So at some point in my own becoming, like I had a very clear sense and an urgent sense that the way I was sort of being reflected in the world wasn't my experience of mm. myself. And so I don't know exactly when that moment happened. And I imagine that probably was the first time I was really aware of masculinity, but I don't I don't have like, you know, a big memory of when that was. I do know I learned about masculinity in a lot of different ways. So just to maybe name a few, I learned about it when I was watching cartoons mm. growing up. I'm an 80s kid. It was like an, an American kid. So, you know, G.I. Joe, He-Man, all of these sort of valor-based, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. action-based cartoons. And I loved them. And I was sort of a big fan for a long time as a kid of the sort of most extreme kinds of masculinities in that way. Like I loved monster truck rallies. I don't even know if you guys have those. We, we know what they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of yeah. these things that we know about because of things like The Simpsons. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> totally. So like, you know, stuff like that, like, and, and that, like war cartoons and, you know, action adventure stuff in that way. Like as I was getting a little bit older, like I learned about men that I, I did like really admire, you know, like um, Gandhi or whatever. Like as a kid, I was that kind of kid who was like, Gandhi, <laughs> that's badass. You know, so. It's a good role model for a child. He was famously badass, yeah. Gandhi, yeah. <laughs> Gentle, but badass, yeah. That's right, though, like other kinds of masculinities and Martin yeah. Luther King and, and, you know, folk guys who had a really different understanding of what being brave was. Yeah. And I remember being sort of confused by that, but also really like drawn to it. Yeah, there's a, the idea of bravery is almost 100% about physical courage when you're a kid, I think. Like, that's the way you're encouraged yes. to think. And it's inevitably it's the way you do start to think. It's fascinating that you're talking about this kind of growing up, you kind of started with looking at people like He-Man and Monster Truck, stuff like that. That's quite aggressively dominant courage. And then almost putting to the complete polar opposite of that in terms of role models like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, who have the same levels of courage, but in a much more pacifist way, I suppose. Yeah. Was there kind of a move from one to the other, or did you kind of combine those in a way in your head? I think that maybe for me, 
you know, not to be too dark, but also the other exposure I was getting to masculinity was that I was being abused by my dad, Yeah, you know, who, who was my only male role model. So I sort of understood that being a man had something to do with power yeah. um, and that I was getting the losing end of that stick and that there was something about me that he had a problem with. It was complicated because I was also coming into a gender identity that I was lucky to be relatively supported in. You know, my, my mom was a really supportive parent, thank God. But I think between my own household being this sort of scary place in that sense, you know, and then being in culture and seeing like, well, this is what a man is. I think that I knew I didn't want to be like my dad, you know? So I think I was looking around for like, well, what other kind, like I'm trying to figure out who I am. I Mm. have this whole gender thing happening. And then I'm trying to look for other kinds of ways to be a man. And I think my mom was just a, she had been very involved in like civil rights activism and so on as a younger person. So I think she was sort of, you know, she sort of solid me this kind of earnest do-gooderiness and was sort of trying to expose me to these different kinds of models, not understanding obviously the whole context. And I think I reacted well to that because I was like, okay, you can have power in a different way. You can be assertive and you can fight for things in a different way. And I think that that was really appealing. But as a kid, like all young children who are masculine, I was trying to prove my masculinity all the time. It's just that there wasn't a language for me. And I, you know, I was a quote tomboy, which was really different. So there was sort of just the politics of being that age and, mm. and trying to be seen as masculine by my peers was just so different. I spent a lot of time kind of confused trying to figure out how to do that well without turning out like my bad dad. You yeah, know? it must be <laughs> immensely confusing to be kind of not sure what the terms are. It seems like what you're saying is you had a kind of thing that your instinct was telling you to aim for, but your main model of that, your dad, was clearly something that you were revolting against. So, like, mm-hmm. it's, it must be very strange. I can't quite imagine not knowing what to aim for in that way, it's as profoundly yeah. as that as a kid. Yeah, it was tough. And then as I got older, I think I saw, like, to your point, I think I saw, like, rebellious men as sort mm-hmm. of potentially, like, my group, you know? Like, I was, I was also of, like, the... 90210 era you know i yes. remember like, I mean, that's my you know? that's my era there we go <laughs> exactly finally michael's in the conversation <laughs> <laughs> with his 20 something vibe <laughs> like i liked dylan better than brandon even yeah. though brandon was like a very you know he was more of a like upright kind of guy but i liked the like rebellious guy or like the james dean characters because i mm. related to that idea of wanting to be yourself but not wanting to have to grow up and become you know your father which mm. is really what all rebels are i think it was interesting you were saying about trying to work out a way of proving your masculinity, uh, but not quite knowing where to where to put that. And I think you talk about that in amateur as well, which mm-hmm. I said I can't say the word amateur. Amateur. I think you've got a problem where you've got it in amateur. your head that you can't say. It I think so now saying, you're, you're I'm, overthinking. I'm not saying it. the T. I'm saying a ch. Amateur. Amateur. I think the more you try and do it, the worse it gets. Okay. I think you should just say that book about boxing. The most recent book that you wrote about boxing. <laughs> and I know that's in a slightly different context, and it's a lot later down within your life. But you were talking about how men often fight when their masculinity is being challenged. Where do you think that need to prove yourself comes from? Because I think that's innate. But where do you think that drive comes from? I think that is a super complicated question because I agree with you that there is something fundamental to masculinity, you know, that connects the two. But the best answer I have that's like the fastest one, I think, is something I found out researching the book, which is about testosterone. So with testosterone, right, like I always assumed and I I injected it starting 10 years ago. So I always assumed when I started taking testosterone that the result was going to be that I would become more aggressive because that's what we all say all the time. And also because frankly, once I started injecting testosterone, 
I had a really different relationship to anger. Like I felt like suddenly I was expressing anger a lot more. I was in a lot of contexts more often where I was having run-ins with guys where it was like standoffs and, yeah. and so on. And, and that's how I ended up getting into this weird street fight, which is what led me to ask all these questions about why do men fight? But the truth is I was also like going through loss. Like I had lost my mom. She had just died. And I was like really upset. And I had just transitioned like a couple of years before and I was still figuring out how to be in the world. And I felt like this constant simulation I was getting, you know, from others was like, there was a lot of room to talk about how angry I was and how fucking hard it was and, you know, et cetera. But it was really hard to find a way to communicate like the grief that's the sad mm. part or any of the like softer mm. pieces of going through grief. So on one hand, there was like, I felt like I was being socialized into anger, you know, like literally, yeah. like it was the only way I could express myself that anyone listened to. And so then anyway, so I ended up like, that's how I ended up fighting. And then I ended up asking the Stanford neurobiologist eventually about testosterone, because this was like the big question I had. Am I sort of doomed <laughs> to being aggressive? And I just have to figure out how to handle that aggression because now I'm suddenly a person who's just aggressive all the time, yeah. and, you know, or is that my lot? And given my male role model, as discussed earlier, I was really afraid that that was true, you know, on some level. And so what he told me was testosterone doesn't make men aggressive but it makes men status seeking. So basically the way that they've shown that is like they've done economic games where the way you win the game is by being the most collaborative. And so in those games, men with the highest testosterone levels within a normal range and men given like a boost of testosterone, but like within a normal range, uh -huh. those men are the most cooperative because they're status seeking. So they want to win the game. And then uh -huh. men who are given a placebo in those same games and told it's testosterone those men act like total jerks in the same games. Wow. So, okay. right. It's fascinating. So like, I think that the status seeking piece of masculinity, you know, as far as I can tell that there is something innate maybe about like that desire to sort of prove yourself amongst other men. But mm. the way that we choose to reward certain behaviors with status is definitely cultural. That's really fascinating. It is interesting. <laughs> as you say, we use testosterone just as like a shorthand word for mm -hmm. specific types of male behavior in the same way that we do about loads of scientific terms because we haven't looked into it like you have <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah as a result you'll hear people say oh he's full of testosterone about like a young boy that's misbehaving or whatever or, or anyone and it, it is interesting because the processes of the mind and body are not that simple for a start no it's not like men are all walking around with a thing that makes us no, go crazy the, and hit each other you've also written in that most recent book that you wrote about the boxing uh, <laughs> amateur <laughs> about the feeling of like a rapid socialization that you felt once you transitioned with these masculine traits which you felt that you didn't necessarily identify with all of them and a lot of your kind of work that you've been doing within yourself is to be kind of unpicking that socialization to kind of be like, which traits of these work for me and which traits don't work for me, I suppose. And do forgive me if I'm butchering your words. No, no, that's, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to hear kind of which traits that you didn't or couldn't identify with, but also which traits you could. What a big question. Can you remember the beginning of it? Because I can't. It was ages ago. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do. I think the main question is, in what ways did my understanding of masculinity kind of, like, was I able to stay in connection with that? And which of them have I sort of eliminated? Exactly. Whatever, yeah. Changed. That was a much better yeah. way of wording it. Thank you for asking yourself the question. <laughs> Maybe yeah. Thomas should be posing the questions for now. Yeah. But I think I get it. I mean, it's an ongoing challenge, I think, for myself. It's like I'm hesitant because I don't want to say any association I had with being a man was somehow like 
a thing that makes you a man versus a thing that doesn't because it's all social anyway right yeah, to yeah. some level like um it's all also personal as well everybody relates to being a man in a different way as well which is important right yes that's really important and because we to your point we police what a man means like you know the idea of being real is something that I thought was unique to trans men when I first transitioned, you know, I wanted to be a real man, mm -hmm. you know, and then I started thinking about being a real man. And, and why is that even a phrase? Yeah, why is it a meaningful idea? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it must mean other men are also worried about being real, which of course is true. And that's sort of the whole thing about being a man is there's one way to do it. You're either failing at it or you're succeeding. But if you're succeeding, there's always someone who can come along and push you off the ledge and tell you that you're not succeeding. And then you have to fight really hard to prove to this random person that you actually are successful in your masculinities. Yeah. As men, we spend a lot of time trying to demonstrate that we are doing being a man yes. well, even yeah. though, as you say, there is obviously not one way of doing that, but it does, it feels as if it is something that dogs a lot of men basically. And as you say, Thomas, it's not a winnable battle because there'll always be people that appear to be doing it better than you anyway. Uh, everyone knows yes. that. that's a, merely a fact of life and who benefits from you spending all your energy doing that that's sort of my whole thing like yeah. who benefits from the distraction of that who benefits from the the upholding of this standard of what being a man means like certainly not the person who's trying really hard to prove it all the time uh -huh. you know nobody benefits i mean in my opinion mm. but the system does so in terms of my own identity like i think the aesthetic aspects of masculinity are really appealing to me like i i do love like working out i love being able to have a beard i love like looking the way i want to look in the world those pieces of being a man um, and being recognized as the man i feel i am yeah. like and being among men in that way all of that has been even more enriching for me than i would have thought but Initially, I would have given it anything just to have other men say, you're valid and you're a real guy. You know, I mean, this is like 10 years ago. There was much less conversation about being trans at all, you know, and I was really kind of afraid all the time, you know, like literally physically afraid, but also afraid of not being able to ever fit kind of into the world. And so I, a lot of my energy was spent, like most men trying to prove <laughs> that I was a man. Yes, yeah. um, <laughs> and I think what felt out of integrity eventually was that I was realizing, you know, I was raised by my mom mostly. I had this bad dad and I'd grown up with all of these ideas about, you know, women that were coming from my mom's own experience of being, you know, a physicist and being someone who'd like really, you know, literally broken glass ceilings. And she trained me in my previous life to be obviously super conscious. And I'd gotten an education about what I was going to have to face in the world based on her understanding of my gender, you know, and my sister and I had that same education. So then once I transitioned and I was suddenly in a place of privilege, but also in a place of constraint in this man box aspect of life, I felt so out of alignment with my own background, you know, with all the things I learned about, you know, being a woman in the world and feminism and all of that. And so when I was interacting with men and it felt like my choice was either to sort of sell out my entire earlier life in order to be accepted or to find some way to like integrate my feminism and my like understanding of gender is expansive and all of that. I just felt like I had to, for me, so much of my identity now has been about trying to integrate that and hold both at the same time. Like, I don't think to be a man, I have to be inherently oppressing other people yeah. to prove that I am a man who deserves to be a man. So that's been the major change. You also, you've mentioned previously about how you found that your voice suddenly became a louder voice within a room, but not that you were perhaps speaking over people, but that other people stopped talking to let you talk as a man, mm -hmm. which I think is fascinating. And I think there's few people who are able to articulate that in such a brilliant way. So I think 
I really enjoyed seeing that from your book. Thank you. Another thing that I thought the book you wrote is about boxing and how has boxing, which is literally physically fighting, I mean, you have boxing on the wall. Amateur, by the way, Michael. Do you matter? No, amateur. You're sort of worrying about the amateur bit, but you can just go I thought, I thought, I thought you just said, right. I matter. And I was like, well, I know you matter, Michael. I, think I matter, okay. but no more, no less than anyone else. I'm just a guy like anyone. Everyone matters. I'm just telling you, I just want you to know there is a way through this, your horror of I'm saying not, this word out there. Okay, <laughs> every time you need to talk about the book from now on, look at you. Yeah, cool. Okay. But yeah, boxing, this is really interesting, I think. So yeah. you've got boxing gloves on the wall behind you which um it just sums up how it's still part of your life how has boxing changed your view of masculinity and how you relate to yourself well i think that the whole way i got involved with it was pretty wild like i was at like a absolute low like it was a few years into my transition i couldn't figure out how to be myself and be a man in the world how to square this past that you had with the future that you were sort of driving towards yeah and I felt like I'd gone through all this trouble. Like, why would I go through it and then end up having to be a kind of person I wasn't proud of? Like, what was the point? Yeah, still not comfortable in your own skin. Yeah, Because it is exactly. a lot of trouble to go to, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, to, to then yes. still not feel better. <laughs> yeah, it felt like this is ridiculous. Like, I always sort of describe it like when I was at home in my house, I felt amazing. Like, when there were no social pieces happening around me i felt so happy when there wasn't a world that you had to participate in Mm. that's Mm -hmm. fascinating and then i would leave my house and it was like like i use the example of walking through manhattan you know like on my way to work because i was living on the lower east side and i would walk up to union square to go to work and it was like just that walk i would leave the house and it would be like on one hand my body would be weaponized you know if i was too close to a woman like if i walked up too closely behind someone by accident like she would cross the street to avoid me because Mm. obviously like men are a threat and i understood that but it was sad yeah yeah and you know and at the same time you know obviously the reverse like then i would show up at work and suddenly i would be taken so much more seriously which isn't to short trip myself i i think i was doing a great job in my actual job but obviously i could tell that prior to my transition literally no one ever listened to me talk and then suddenly everyone was i mean it was a pretty stark difference yeah. so you know i think that all of that was so confusing and i really wanted to figure out a way to I don't know. I needed like a map and I didn't have one. So the map I came up with was to ask questions because I'm a journalist first and it was sort of the only instinct I had that I felt like could help me, you know? And so when I got into the street fight, I realized that I had this question, which is like, why do men fight? By which I mean, what is the relationship between masculinity and violence? Like literally, we have a lot of ideas about what it is, but what is it actually? And so I got involved in fighting from that place. And I I specifically got interested in white collar fighting because these are men who have no actual reason, you know, no need economically, you know, there's no driving reason to fight if you don't have to, right? Theoretically. Yeah. They're fighting for some reason, which is not to do with escaping poverty or, mm-hmm. or like it has to be something weirder and more internal, more primal. Yeah. Yes. And environmental potentially and whatever. And so that's how I got involved. But I, what I was surprised by, which I did not forget the question, uh, <laughs> what I was surprised by, by the experience was actually what later a sociologist explained to me was like the, having the cover of violence actually allowed a lot of intimacy for me with these guys. So in the end, like the most surprising thing was that I actually felt like I healed all of my stuff about men, like my own background, and my childhood stuff, because I was in this context where I was with all these guys, like literally five or six hours a day training for this fight for like six months. And I didn't tell folks I was trans because I didn't want to have that be sort of a mediating factor. And because I was frankly kind of scared for my safety, at least in the beginning. But over time, like it was very powerful to sort of realize that I could have this connection with other men where we could be like helping each other get better. That's a lot of what boxing is. It sounds 
surprising, I think, but like, you know, you're just one person who goes into a ring. So we were all training for fights, but we were all sparring and helping each other get better. So like fighting became something totally different. It wasn't about harm. It was about like helping. Yeah, the, the fight that you see, like, especially at top level boxing, well, any boxing, I suppose, the fight that you see is only the, like you say, a tiny, it's the tip of an iceberg, which has been mostly about, I guess, kind of brotherhood and, and collaboration and stuff like that. And not, mm-hmm. like, and you see that if you ever visit, I've only been a few times to boxing gyms, but you'll see, you know, like, like Thomas says, people helping each other train, like sparring. Again, you, when you watch boxing on TV, you're quite divorced from that because you're just seeing two potentially very wealthy people like smash the shit out of each other for about 10 minutes until Mm -hmm. they get stopped and they get paid. But you're right. At root, boxing is to do with community in a way that people maybe don't think about. And intimacy and knowing yourself. I guess being in a group of men who were always asking me, like, did I sleep enough? Did I eat enough? Where my mental state was. Wow. Examining my fucking spiritual issues with me. Like, because... Yeah, conversations which men don't normally have until they're hitting each other. It's interesting, isn't it? Yes. It was fascinating. So in many ways, like, I think the biggest thing I learned was that I had a lot more in common with even the most archetypical masculine men than I thought I did, but that I had to find my way to those relationships into that understanding of myself through a different, you know, track through questioning and through like seeing what we had in common rather than sort of just striving to literally dominate and beat the guy at the end. Like if that had been my whole purpose, I would have missed most of the journey, you know? Yeah. But do you think that intimacy and that ability to kind of talk a bit more freely comes from the fact that when you walk into that space, you are essentially opening yourself up to be made weaker or vulnerable? That's really interesting. I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's a certain kind of person who is willing to put their physical body on the line. Hmm. I don't know as a way to prove anything. I mean, I understand it's a masculine sort of value, but I don't think most men I know actually ever do that. And I, and of course, not just men do this. I know plenty of women who box. I know plenty of women athletes, right, who, you know, that being said, like, I think that it's a certain kind of person regardless, who's like, this is the way I'm going to figure this out. And I think boxing has in a literary way, always been about man versus himself like that's just true so yeah what you're saying is that the the central struggle of boxing is more about you versus yourself rather than because that opponent you only meet on that day right but you are living with yourself yeah for all those months leading up to it yeah and i think that there's something about you know of course you're like facing this other guy or this other person but like you're not it, that person's a mirror of you you know right. that in so many ways and so and the, the ways that you win at boxing really are like mental and, and spiritual, really. Like it's like the ability to stay upright, you know, no matter what's happening to you mm. or to like not feel afraid when someone's hitting you in the face. I mean, that is like very hard. Mm. It, the training is so much more mental and emotional. So I think maybe in my feeling, Michael, it felt like more like that's where it was coming from. Like we were all having to look at ourselves especially cis men don't really have a lot of opportunities like that. Like where you have to really look at like, why am I having this reaction? What am I bringing to the table that's causing this response? Otherwise I'm, you know, no, it's not natural for anyone to get hit like that. It's just not. I'm a fan of a lot of sports and increasingly these days, people talk about the mental side of it. You know, most top level sports people and teams and clubs have, you know, employed teams of psychologists and individual sports people have their own, brain guy and um brain guy brain guy that is the yeah. new job what do you do thomas well i'm a brain guy oh cool great <laughs> and it's interesting because as you say those uh, sports people are often stereotyped as not being you know intelligent or academic or reflective but often you'll see people in those fields talking about their mental processes and it does strike you that most of us 
especially cis men actually don't have those conversations. Like you have to almost be a professional sports person, weirdly, before someone encourages you to think about what's happening. Because a lot of sports, like you say, yes. even ones like boxing, especially a lot of individual sports are enormously down to your your mental response to failure or fear or all those things. I've seen sports people interviewed about these things and thought, Christ, I've never thought that fully about it because yeah. it feels as if we have to be made as men to have those conversations with ourselves, basically. Right. I agree with you. I think it is that cover of violence too, because it's like, it allows for that sheen of vulnerability that actually mm. is required, but you have this containment around it where you're there for, you know, it's okay because you're going to hit somebody in the face a little bit. So mm-hmm. you can yeah. say, you can you talk know. about your feelings because you can <laughs> yes. smash someone's nose out of joint in 15 minutes. It's worth saying you, I mean, you've got the boxing glove still hung up on your wall, which I'm assuming isn't just as a relic. You've kept going. What's kept you going with boxing? Well, I mean, it is, it's sort of both. Like it's, I mean, I haven't stopped working out and I haven't stopped my sort of like boxing training broadly, but I do keep them up because, you know, I'm from, well, first of all, I'm adapting amateur into a movie. So I'm thinking a lot about what that oh, amazing. <laughs> time of my life was like, yeah. So that's like part of it. But also like, I want to remember boxing brought me back into my body. I mean, that's actually what it did for me personally. Like it allowed me to be embodied in a way I'd never been before, like ever. Mm you know, and that was so worth it for me. What keeps me invested in boxing as a sport or keeps me engaged with it is that I, it allows me to be, it allows me to be physically embodied and it allows me to ask those questions still. Like I I still have the room to say like, is this the kind of man I want to be or not? You know, I mean, I'm not going and sparring and hitting other guys or anything. I can still engage those questions. I think that sports really allowed me that. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. On that question of the kind of man you now want to be, now that you can be whatever you want, finally, you talked earlier about like very early examples of people like Gandhi who you thought you know were uh, kind of proto-examples of a good type of masculine, a good approach. Are, are there men or at least masculine figures now that you particularly admire? Not that you necessarily want to be them, but are there, are there examples of people now that you think are, well, are good men? Like how's your idea of that template changed because of the way your life's changed? 
I think this is sort of an obnoxious answer, but it's an honest one. Like, I think I stopped looking for role models. No, that's not an obnoxious answer. It's, it's, I think that's <laughs> interesting because it is, yeah, well, carry on. I realized there was more value, at least for me. And I'm coming from a very different experience too. Like when I first transitioned, you know, a big thing that was happening was it felt like there were so many stories about trans people in the news. I was working in the news and it felt like underlying them all was this sort of sense that like, there was like an otherness, yeah. like being other. My experience is so different from yours and there's no way you could ever understand it. And uh-huh. I don't think trans people are framing it that way. I think people who weren't trans were. Yeah. And I wasn't having, in my actual life, I felt like I was really relating to everyone around me in so many different ways. Like I, I always think about this pregnant woman who was like my landlord who lived above me at the beginning of my transition. And like, we were really going through some similar shit. Like, you know, she yeah. was putting hormones in her body. Like she was like having to like figure out how to, imagine her life after this child and would yeah reimagine her identity yeah exactly and all the things she was thinking about so anyway so i feel like as i've gotten older and as i've been embodied for longer and a lot of what's driven me is like actually the opposite of being othered so through this experience of like boxing and all this reporting i've done on masculinity i found that i have way more in common with cis men than i don't for example Uh and a lot of what i'm interested in thinking about is like how are our experiences the same um and how do we like talk about like who we're becoming in a way that's actually about like finding our points of commonality, you know? And so with role models, like, I guess for me, it's like my evolution as a person comes more from figuring out what is in my integrity and versus what is not. And that's so much more complicated than like looking at one person and saying like, oh, well, this guy's got it sorted out, you know? Like my mom was a role model. And also she wasn't in other ways, like Mm. other, you know, the men at the gym were role models and they weren't in certain ways. Like I still think Gandhi's a great role model, but also completely different than my life in many ways. You still want to have shoes on, probably. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's true. It's not an obnoxious answer. There is a fundamental problem with the idea of a role model, which is that we end up taking tiny bits from a million people, really, rather than being able to emulate. You wouldn't want to emulate a person to that extent. A truly obnoxious answer would have just been if you said, fuck off, I'm not talking to you. Or if you said me. (laughs) Yeah, well... Actually, no, that's not really an obnoxious answer. That's quite a nice answer. So I take that back. Can I say one more thing about role models? Of course. Just that I also think it's interesting that in my experience, that's a question put to men way more than other Mm, people. Really? Yeah. You know, I don't think I've ever been asked before my transition who my role models were. There's something specific about the idea that we have to achieve in masculinity, achieve a certain kind of maleness or realness. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's true, isn't it? That men are held to certain standards, like measured by the actions of other men. That has mm-hmm. genuinely blown my mind slightly. I haven't, I'd never even, <laughs> and I like to think of myself as fairly open-minded, but that's something that I hadn't thought of. Yeah. You were kind of talking there in terms of trans people are being othered, whether that's in the media, whether that's in the news, whether that's in the streets, in the in politics, everywhere. You seem full of hope and able to articulate that hope and articulate that drive forwards. And I hope it's not too personal a question, but where do you find that drive and that hope when things can feel quite, I suppose, overwhelming? And I ask that because I, I assume and I hope there'll be people out there who may identify with various parts of your journey who are seeing all those things as well. And mm-hmm. I just wondered whether you might share with us how you kind of get out of bed in the morning and keep that drive going i mean i don't always have hope but i guess like overall i do it's true because i think that my life keeps being enriched by the belief that people who insist on othering other people are doing so from a place of violence and shame and we all know that shame according to like the prison researcher james gilligan for example shame is the source of all violence it's the source of pretty much 
all, I believe, our social ills, like internal shame and also the shame that we put on other human beings. For me, a lot of the hope I get comes from, I guess, seeing the universality of the human condition. Like it's not specific to trans people Mm -hmm. that there's like an instinct to react negatively to our experience because it challenges the status quo and therefore it makes people uncomfortable because they have to look at themselves and then that causes like whatever the people's internal shame and violence reactions are. I mean, all of this is part of a long, long history that we currently have the chance to disrupt maybe, Hmm. I think in a way that most people throughout human history haven't been able to see as clearly as we can right now. But I think that the solution as we are all, I think, demonstrating in the last, you know, five years, especially that like having a sense of like, you know, what activists call intersectionality, or maybe what lay people might just call like seeing our commonality in each other, and then fighting for other people who are different than us, not because it's just the right thing to do, but because that's the way we envision our shared humanity. You're on the side of shared humanity and moving forward from that place. And, you know, all the requisite other things that come from that, like, for example, I think that the idea of toxic masculinity is a demonstrable public health crisis as well as an environmental crisis, for example. So if you care about that and you care about saving the planet, then you need to also care about how men are being socialized. And if you care about how men are being socialized, then you're going to think about white supremacy and you're going to think about transphobia. And, you know, it's like all these things are interconnected. So I guess I feel hope because I feel like even when I started my transition, nobody was having these conversations, like literally not a single person. That was part of why I wrote my book. And so that's a short time. <laughs> yes. It's exciting to think that maybe, you know, there's no doubt that we become a more kind of integrated global community with every day that passes. And that's only going to continue in that direction. So it's, you know, I think it's inspiring to think that an upshot of that is that this is a kind of unique opportunity because the uh, integration of ideas, the way with the exchange of ideas is, is so instant now. I think you're right. There are... Uh, I'm speaking from the privileged side, but well, even, I mean, even on my side of things, like people like me who have had things more our way are being not just encouraged, but kind of, kind of forced to think about it for exactly the reasons you've said, which is that if you care about some stuff, you have to care about everything mm-hmm. basically. And, and that is a positive note. I think it's nice to feel that the changes that we've seen in the world, the different technology that we have at our disposal, all of these things can be things that we can use to push civilization forward like we've as thomas says we've never been able to do before yeah and we have individual choice i think that's really real and i think sometimes it can feel like that's not true but the individual's choices we're making every single day a thousand times a day really can better you know our immediate world but then our communities and then expand beyond and beyond so that's how i maintain a sense of hope and possibility i think a lot of people will feel hope listening to that yeah that's great <laughs> that was really wonderful to hear thank you thomas of course a final question we always ask everybody before we free them from our conversation is three qualities that you would build into every man to better equip them going forward in, into the world in which we live in, but perhaps the world we want to live in as well. What three things do you think are really important to kind of build into people moving forward? I actually think I have a very pragmatic answer to that question. I mean, I think I'd like to hope not too long from now that things will be shifting and these things won't be necessary, but yeah. I would give men three antidotes to the ways that they are. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's a really yeah. nice way of thinking about it. Yeah. We've all spent a lot of this year thinking about antidotes. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, and I know for a fact from like the reporting I've done about boys that like boys are socialized out of qualities that actually uh-huh. cause mm. harm to their yeah. mental health. So I would socialize those right back in. <laughs> <laughs> Start again. <laughs> Primarily that's empathy. Yeah. Like really having empathy for the people around you and being rewarded for that empathy through intimacy. 
So empathy, that leads to intimacy, empathy and compassion. I would say critical thinking, critical thinking skills about gender specifically, but also about the world around you, because especially if you're a white guy, especially, you, you probably don't even see it. So it's not just for the benefit of others. Like you don't even see your own constrictions usually. So like the critical thinking skills about gender and about, you know, even the places where you're feeling rewarded just so that you can then make those interventions like we're talking about. Mm. And then the last thing I would say is, you know, we were talking earlier about this idea of proving something and like that sense of valor. I would reframe valor or at least expand valor or bravery, which I think of as action in the face of fear. I would include vulnerability within that context. Because mm. I think for most people being vulnerable, and obviously we, we reward it in artists, for example, you know, in other parts of life, but like being yeah. vulnerable in that way is um, mm. obviously brave, but we socialize boys and men away from that kind of bravery. So those would be my three antidotes. Yeah, we frame it as basically the opposite yes. of bravery, if anything. Like you can't be vulnerable and brave. Exactly. And even though in fact, like growth comes from vulnerability. Yeah. And so if we want to literally grow as humans, we need to be able to be vulnerable in that way. That's my my three dose <laughs> antidote. <laughs> you said it was a pragmatic solution, but have you developed an actual vaccine against all of these harmful male behaviors or is this <laughs> yes. just purely theory at the moment? Pfizer is still testing it. We'll see if... <laughs> Let us know when this is freely available. We'll start <laughs> yeah. going around shoving it into people. Frontline workers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Thomas. Honestly, you've been really insightful and open with us and it's been truly wonderful oh thanks so much do you have anything you'd like to plug i suppose i mean you do have a film coming out well not coming out but in the process that's exciting yeah is there anything else you want to plug or where people can find you yeah i mean you can find me at thomas page McBee on instagram or uh my website is the same and if you are interested in any things i'm talking about my last book would be a great place to start it is a reported book what's it called mark well maybe we should let thomas say the name of the book <laughs> it's called amateur and the subtitle is a reckoning with gender identity and masculinity honestly it's a very very good read like i found it really fascinating so thank, thank you, you for it thank you but then you're aware that if you don't say that he's been trained to punch you really hard yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a guest that you don't want to make an enemy out of thank you so much <laughs> for joining us thomas thank you yeah thank you very much thanks so much for having me guys that was really fun Thank you for listening to Menkind. You can find us on social media at Menkind Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Well, you can send us an email, menkindpodcast at gmail.com. Why not do that? We will read it as well. So I hope you enjoyed that chat with Thomas as much as we did. We have now committed to doing these kind of outros where we don't really have anything to say apart from please keep listening to us, I suppose. It's just a kind of needy coda, isn't it? Where we say... A coda? Yeah, coda, you know. Is That's that a nice word. It's not used enough, is it? It's a musical term meaning the tale, isn't it? But it refers to the end of a piece of music, I think. I mean, I did refer to it as the outie earlier. But regardless, yeah. um, next week we have the wonderful Andrew O'Neill. And I hope you stick with us for that. I think you should. Andrew O'Neill is very interesting character comedian but also a sort of metal guy but also a sort of wizard the overwhelming feeling i had when i was about five was there'd been some sort of administrative error there's been a mistake <laughs> i didn't order this and then the first time i remember having diarrhea i was delighted because i was finally weeing out of my bum like girls do <laughs> pretty painful way to get there but i <laughs> silver lining <laughs> and please remember to rate us and like us and that sort of thing at the risk of sounding even needier. Yes, please like us and only review us with five stars. Right, that's enough pathetic stuff from us for this week. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>
Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.